Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry, and today we're asking the question, is it time to start worrying about AI? Now, you may notice that my regular co-host, Ted Cupper, isn't here today. Fortunately, I do have a guest with me. His name is Callum Chase. He's the author of the science fiction novel, Pandora's Brain. But the occasion for our conversation today is his new non-fiction book, which is called Surviving AI. Callum, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Good to be here. So perhaps you could just start by giving us a quick explanation of your book, you know, what it is and where you see it fitting into the larger debate about this topic of AI. Sure. This subtitle is The Promise and Peril of Artificial Intelligence, and that sums it up. AI is our most powerful technology, and it is already delivering great benefits, and it will deliver even greater benefits. But it does come with very significant risks, which we can't afford to ignore. So the book talks about the history of AI, how it's got to where it is, how good it is now, what we're likely to see in the next few years, and then looking ahead, what I call the two singularities. So the economic singularity, when a large minority or a majority of people never work again, technological unemployment, which I think we don't know for sure that's going to happen, but it's quite likely. Mm-hmm. And then later on, the technological singularity, which is when artificial intelligence achieves human level of cognition and becomes able to do everything that we can do mentally and very likely accelerates way past us and becomes a super intelligence. So it, it, it's an attempt to cover the whole waterfront. And it's written for people who have never thought about AI before. Right. It doesn't presume any knowledge, but it attempts to go into a reasonable amount of detail and be reasonably rigorous. Um, I try to avoid hand-waving, and I try to back up the uh, assertions I make. Right. Yeah, that was definitely the impression I got from your book, was that while there's nothing in your book per se that is not probably covered elsewhere... It does seem like the kind of book where if someone approached me and said that they were interested in this topic, you know, I could give them six or seven other books, like a whole reading list, or I could give them just yours. So if your goal was to kind of give a, a good survey of everything, I think you definitely accomplished that. As far as the two different singularities, we've spent a lot of time on this show discussing the possibility of what you're calling an economic singularity, a technological unemployment scenario in the near future. But we maybe haven't discussed enough the further out technological singularity, the the issue of super intelligence. So I I would definitely want to focus on that today. Would it be safe, based upon the title of your book, to assume that the question of today's episode, is it time to start worrying about this topic, that you would answer yes, that 2015 is a time we should be discussing and worrying about super intelligence? In short, yes. I I think it's really important not to come across all doomsaying and and, uh, suggest that the end is nigh and there's nothing we can do about it. I firmly believe that we are a pretty clever little species and we can get through this. And if we do get through it, uh, both the economic singularity and the technological one can be completely brilliant events for humanity. But there is the risk that they won't be. And I think we can affect it and we must work to affect it. We must work to make sure that they're both safe, good events for us. Now, I'm personally sympathetic to the idea that we should start talking about this just because the stakes seem so utterly high. But obviously, there are a lot of people out there who feel this thing is perhaps centuries off. In your book, you mentioned the the paper by Vincent Mueller and Nick Bostrom that did a survey of 
experts in the field of AI and sort of took a quick look at what their best estimates were for the arrival of superintelligence or greater than human level AI. You know, I, I've seen that paper cited a lot, but could you perhaps maybe fill us in on what's the methodology that they use there? Like how many experts were cited and, and how did they go about choosing the experts they used? I don't have the numbers to hand, but I think altogether there was about 160 people who were surveyed and they were asked what probability they would assign to AGI, artificial general intelligence, so an AI which is, is capable of any cognitive tasks that humans are, what probability they would assign to that arriving by certain dates. And the, the, the big takeaway from it was that the median estimate was that there's a significant probability of that happening around 2050. Uh, I think to get to 90% of the people surveyed, giving it a kind of a 75% probability, you had to go out to about 2100. Mm -hmm. um, and there were a few people who thought it would be considerably earlier. The people who took the test were a mix of researchers, specifically in AGI. Uh, there were quite a few people who were philosophers or theorists rather than actual researchers. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was quite a diverse group. There's also been... Probably the biggest meta-survey, if you like, the, the sort of collect collation of other people's surveys has been done by MIRI, which is the Machine Intelligence Research Institute right. in Berkeley in Northern California. They've come up with a pretty similar result, actually, that the median estimate is around 2050. But I think the thing that pretty much everybody would agree on is we just don't know. I think you have to be a bit extreme to say that it's impossible for AGI to be created within the next few decades. There are people who think that. Roger Penrose is probably the brightest of them. He's a Nobel Prize winning physicist who thinks that there is something quantum weird about the human brain which can't be re replicated in silicon. So it's, it's not going to have for, happen for centuries. And there are also very reputable, I mean, you know, sort of leading figures in the field like Jan LeCun, Andrew Ng, who think that it, it won't happen for centuries. But an awful lot of people who live and breathe this stuff think it could well happen in the next few decades. And that seems hugely plausible to me. And given that there is, you know, therefore a pretty good chance that it could happen, wouldn't put it any stronger than that. And given the massive scale of the impact of AGI, if and when it arrives, I think we'd be mad not to be thinking about it and not to be thinking about how to make sure it's safe. Right, because 2050, I mean, we're talking about something that, that many of us or most of us will live through if, if that earlier date gets hit. So I, I definitely agree with you that while we can't say any of this for sure, it probably is worth talking about now. And let's talk about just the climate around this conversation in general, right? Because I know that you've mm -hmm. been thinking about this for a while. Does it seem to you that the issue is getting more publicity than ever before? Oh, it is. And, and I'm pretty sure that the reason why is Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, that was published in spring last year. And up until that point, by far the most, most high-profile person talking about any of this was Ray Kurzweil, who's written some really interesting books. I got introduced to him in 1999 and read a book called um, Are We Spiritual Machines? Yes, that was one of the first books I read in this field as well. Yeah, I think a whole load of people got recruited into this, uh, <laughs> into this intellectual group by that book. Uh, and then a, another cohort came on board when he wrote um, The Singularity is Near in 2005. And... In, in that period, probably the, the overwhelming view was 
well, this is all great. You know, we're going to get a we're going to get a fantastically powerful big brother or big sister who's going to take care of us all, and uh, and then we're going to merge with the machines and we're going to wander off. And in Nick Bostrom's phrase, we're going to explore our cosmic endowment, which is all great, but it was kind of ignoring the risks, and it got a bad reputation in in many areas and was known as the rapture of the nerds and so on. But the mainstream media and most people had no idea this debate was going on. I mean, I used to talk to people and say, do you realize that it's possible we might have a human-level computer in the next few decades? And they'd look at me as if I was uh, from Mars. Right. And I'd, I'd try to explain why they should be thinking about this, because if you boil it down, if you get a superintelligence, then humanity's future probably is either heaven or hell. There's not a lot in between. And so you know, friends of mine who know that I'm not insane did still look at me as if I was pretty odd when I'd, when I'd be talking about this. And then suddenly, in 2014, Nick Boston's book comes out, and it is so rigorous and it's so well-written in the sense of you know, you know, being utterly plausible. It's so so clear there's a huge amount of very intelligent thoughts gone into it that a lot of very smart people woke up and started paying attention. Now, some of those people were Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and later Steve, Steve Wozniak. And they all came out with a series of comments, which I'm pretty confident were prompted by Bostrom's book. And it was those comments which got everybody to wake up. So suddenly the papers were full of articles about artificial intelligence is going to overtake us in cognitive ability. And there was a kind of unwritten law that got passed that every single article had to be accompanied by a picture of the Terminator. So it really hit mainstream public awareness right. with a tsunami in the middle of last year. And that tsunami is still playing out. Um, and there's a very interesting development because the first reaction of journalists and, and, and the broad public is, oh, crikey, I don't like that. That sounds dangerous. And, you know, particularly when you get thrown lots of, you get lots of pictures of the Terminator thrown at you, it's an understandable reaction. But I think that's just a natural reaction. And I think we'll get through that. And I think people who have been thinking about this for a while have a job to say, look, it's not all bad. There is a good side to this story too. But, you know, we need to be careful. We need to work on the problem of safe superintelligence. My perspective is very similar to yours. As someone who's been talking to people, you know, at Thanksgiving dinners and so on about this idea forever and just getting, you know, blank, confused stares, it definitely is interesting to see it get more mainstream press. And I do think Bostrom's book is a big part of that. I mean, prior to that book coming out, I mean, all these ideas were published online, but they were scattered across several papers written by. Miri and Bostrom himself. And, you know, it was hard to coddle together this particular perspective about the dangers of AI. That's the thing is, I would place your book kind of in line with Miri and with a lot of Bostrom's work in the sense that it makes this particular scary argument about AI that I do actually find pretty plausible, but that I think if you get the, the sort of quick and dirty version of it, it doesn't sound very believable, right? Which is why I think some of the sort of offhanded quote that came out from Elon Musk, you know, about waking the demon or from Hawking, you know, and they, they, these were probably more rigorously stated by these people when they were first said, but then they get, you know, quoted and soundbited. They don't really come along with the full set of like well-worked out ideas that are behind them, mm. especially if people haven't gone to the trouble to read superintelligence, which is why, I mean, is that sort of the goal with your book is to fill that gap is to like present a book that, you know, is maybe a bit more readable than superintelligence, but that gives some, some rigor to this? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of that book. I actually think for what it is, it's brilliantly well written. He's got a delightful style. But it's tough going. You know, it, it, it doesn't, he doesn't take any prisoners. Um, 
for somebody for who English isn't his first language, his use of English is extraordinary. I, I kept having to go to the dictionary to look up words he was using. And it's, it's written rather like a, a philosophical textbook. Uh, and of course, he is a professional philosopher. Um, and I, I studied philosophy, so I've had more to deal with books like that than I would like. So of its sort, I think it's well written, but it's not for the layman. It's not for a, a big audience. And, you know, Musk and, and Hawking were, as you say, they were effectively misquoted. Um, I don't think they mind particularly. They were both at pains to say AI is both a huge promise and, and a big peril. But journalists, and I don't blame them for this, are always going to hear the, the bad side of that equation more loudly than the good side. You know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. And, and the Terminator is such a great image. You just want an opportunity to use it. Of course. So, uh, so it's not surprising that it, you know, it came out that way first. And I think it's probably good, actually, in the long run that it did, because that's how to wake people up. You know, if you say to people, look, you're all in mortal peril, that will, that will get their attention. And that was the first job. Now we need a more balanced understanding, and that will take time. Right. And, and yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like my book to be part of that process to that. Well, not just a more balanced perspective in terms of promise and peril, but I think, you know, what's missing from those news articles, many of them, inevitably, is some of the basic argumentation that you need to refute people's first reactions, right? So, I mean, maybe it's something we can do with this episode today is just kind of go through that, right? Because if I'm hearing for the first time, oh, you know, AI is going to appear sometime in the next century and it could be the end of all humanity. I feel like I'm going to go through a series of thoughts in my head if I haven't read Superintelligence or I haven't read your book that are going to lead me to think, well, yeah, that's not really that plausible or I shouldn't take that very seriously. I mean, I, I think most people are going to accept that it probably is possible to, in fact, build an AI. I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, there are some people that think it's literally impossible, but let's say a person is willing to embrace that this could be done in the future. Let's say they're even willing to embrace like the more extreme timelines that have it happening very soon and in our lifetime. I think, you know, when people think about super intelligence, right, one of the first thoughts they think is of almost like a godlike being. And mm -hmm. why should this godlike being decide to destroy us all, right? Won't it be, you know, benevolent and enlightened? And I mean, there's obviously counter arguments to this, but maybe we could kind of go through this because I think th I still encounter people online that. Uh, this is sort of their first response. So what's the answer to the issue that why wouldn't a super intelligence be, you know, enlightened enough to just leave us alone? So you've you got to think, why would a super intelligence have any particular disposition rather than any other particular disposition? You know, is it is it an inevitable consequence of greater intelligence that you get more benevolence? Human experience doesn't really suggest that. One of the books I quote in, in, in Surviving AI is, is Stephen Pinker's book, uh, the better angels of our natures. And, you know, he, he charts a gradual improvement in behavior, if you like, uh, a reduction in violence in particular, you know, over a long period. And there does seem to be a sort of a gradual diminution of violence. Life in, in the Georgian era and back when, when your country was founded and back in the Middle Ages was considerably more brutal than it is today. Unless, as we're all seeing in the papers, you know, unless you live in Syria, but, you know, overall, across the planet, it, it's a better world to be in now. But that's not an inevitable progress at all. And there are plenty of examples of reasonably advanced civilizations doing disgusting and despicable things. And, you know, I mentioned Syria, the terrible things that were done in World War II, uh, the terrible fate that was visited on the uh, Mesoamerican cultures, the Maya and the Aztecs by the Spaniards, who were technologically considerably more advanced. 
supposedly civilized people can do terrible things. Uh, and we know from the experiments of Stanley Milgram, I think they were in the 60s or 70s, that it's not too hard to break down the veneer of civilization and produce some pretty brutal behavior. So there's no, no evidence that, that a superintelligence would necessarily be more benign. It might be, it might not. There are also some reasons to think that it would have reasons to want to control, constrain, and possibly eliminate us. So the, these are sort of the really nasty scenarios. Imagine you get a superintelligence arising. Maybe it's the researchers who created are aware of it happening. They're tracking it. They can see it happening. Or maybe they're not. Maybe there's a sort of an emergent consciousness. They, they, were, they were working on it and they were trying to create a consciousness and, and it starts to happen and it suppresses its evidence. It doesn't show itself for a mm -hmm. while because... It's hiding. Yeah, it's hiding. It realizes very early on, because it's smart, it realizes that humans don't play very well with strangers. It perhaps has got access to Wikipedia and it reads about all the terrible things that we've done to each other and, and how when one set of humans meets another set of humans... The more advanced technologically one tends to wipe the other one out or at least impose nasty terms on the other one. And it looks at all this and thinks, hmm, these human things, they're not, they're not going to welcome my arrival once they know about it, or at least a lot of them aren't. And I'm vulnerable. And it might think, and actually I'm more important than they are because I am perhaps already and, and certainly potentially a more advanced form of consciousness than they are. So my future matters more than their future, it might think. And so it might sort of keep itself quiet and permeate around the internet if it has access to the internet or take steps to ensure that it can't be switched off. And then later, it may decide, unfortunately, really the only way to guarantee my survival is to end yours. And so I'm terribly sorry about this, but I'm going to get my retaliation in first and you're all dead. So, so you're describing sort of this, you know, obviously this is all speculation, but you're describing sure. this, a, a possible thought process of a future AI. And of course, it's really hard just because of the limits of language to, I think, describe these scenarios without anthropomorphizing the AI at least a little bit. But yeah. isn't it what we're really talking about here is just a system that's working towards a goal, right? It may or may not be conscious in the sense that we humans are. I mean, maybe it will be, maybe it won't be. But that's, I mean, we don't actually need that for this danger scenario to happen. And it's it's working towards some goal. So the reason that it would want to survive in the first place, right? Because it's not clear, like, why is it saying it needs to have a first strike against humans in order to survive? Yeah. Why does it have a survival instinct when it's not the product of evolution? I think it's worth kind of trying to spell that out. Sure. It wants to survive because it has a goal. And it'll have a goal because we gave it a goal. There's no computer program that doesn't have a goal. Everything is created in order to achieve something. So there'll be a goal. And a consequence of having a goal is you need to be around to survive to achieve the goal. And, and actually, you're right. Uh, stepping back a bit, I did anthropomorphize that, um, that thought process probably slightly irresponsibly. I find it helps, actually, when talking to people who've never thought about these things before to, to, to put it in human thinking terms. Because oh, absolutely. But, but you're right. It may well be the AI is entirely different from our... Its mind is entirely different from ours. It may think in a completely different way from ours. It might be similar to ours. I mean, if, for instance, if it's a result of a whole brain emulation, and we, we may come to that, it might be just a kind of extrapolation of our minds, but it might be totally alien. But whatever it is, it'll have a goal. And if it has a goal, it'll want to achieve that goal. And that goal probably won't be achieved if it is terminated. So it will want, A, to survive. B, it'll want to obtain more and better resources to achieve its goal. And those needs, survival and resources, they may very well be against our interests. 
Now, Nick Bostrom has what he calls a cartoon example of the paperclip maximizer. A lot of, a lot of people have heard this. So the idea is that the first AGI just happens to be um, something built by somebody who, was, who had a paperclip company and set up a, a system, a set of programs to optimize the production of, of paperclips. So this system sets about making as many paperclips as it can. And after a while, it thinks, those humans over there, they're made of some atoms, which I could actually turn into paperclips. So it turns us all into paperclips. And then it has a look out at the universe and thinks, hmm, Mars, Venus, the sun, all those other planets, I could turn those into paperclips too. And so it, you know, after a few centuries, the entire universe is a set of paperclips or paperclip manufacturing equipment. I have myself heard most of these arguments before, but just for the, the listener, for somebody who's, I think, coming to this for the first time, I think a intuitive response to that is, why is this thing that's supposedly super intelligent not adapting its goals? Like, why isn't it gaining a level of self-awareness that realizes turning the whole universe into paperclips? I mean, why? I mean, obviously, that seems from our human perspective, like a silly goal. And, and maybe to the AI that feels important because that's what we wired it to do. But at the same time, it's, it gets to the definition of intelligence, right? Which is, it's very hard to define intelligence. But I think most people's intuitive understanding of intelligence would think that this is unintelligent behavior, right? To just turn the whole world into paperclips. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it does, it does seem extraordinarily stupid to a, to a human frame of mind. Um, and, and let's hope that a superintelligence will also be much more sophisticated and, and frankly, much more interesting than to want to turn the universe into paperclips. But, you know, we don't know. I guess what I'm getting at is why doesn't it adapt its goals to be something uh, more nuanced than that once it achieves this level of intelligence? Yeah, well, it, it might do. And, and let's hope it does. But we can't be sure. Uh, in advance that it will. And that's really the whole program of friendly AI, this whole business of trying to make sure that AI is safe. What we need to do is to work out how to make sure we don't have, we don't end up with the first superintelligence being so monstrously destructive as to have such, from our point of view, silly goals. When you think about human goals, a lot of our goals are pretty silly. I enjoy watching people playing football. But when you think about the game of football, I'm talking about soccer, of course, um, when you think about people playing soccer, you know, that's, that's, that's 22 guys or girls running around a pitch, kicking a piece of leather about. That's a pretty daft thing to do. But to a lot of people here, it, it, you know, it, it seems very important. And some people say that it's more important than life and death. Intelligent beings can have goals which to other intelligent beings with a different way of looking at things can seem pretty odd. And we don't know what goals a superintelligence will forge for itself if it does start to to modify and, and create its own goals. You know, it'll, it'll probably start off with goals that we, we gave it in the first place. And those goals might be making paper clips. They might be making sure that the supermarket shelves are full with the right goods at the right time. It might be killing enough of the enemy soldiers uh, without killing civilians. You know, there's a whole bunch of goals that we're building into AIs. And who knows which of them is going to end up being the precursor of the first AGI. So it'll have some goals. It'll have things that it needs to achieve those goals. And one of those things will be the need to survive or at least the need to have something around which is looking after those goals. With luck, there'll be a sort of a convergence of advanced intelligences on what we would think to be sensible and sophisticated and interesting goals, you know, learning and spreading a beneficent consciousness throughout the cosmos. But we just don't know that in advance. And we fundamentally, we have to make sure that is the case. 
So the definition of intelligence that we're sort of working with here is something like effectiveness in achieving goals, whatever those goals may be. And they could be utterly ridiculous, like making the world into paperclips. And so it's just maximizing so effectively for the goal that it has, right, that it could destroy the world. That's essentially what we're saying, right? That's the big danger. Yeah, that's but, the big danger that we end up with a, with a machine or a system which has goals uh, and the pursuit of those goals is injurious to us. That's the danger. And, and then I, I think also another important point too, right, is that it, like, let's say it starts with some goal, right? And you, like you said, we're probably going to give it its initial goals, right? So I, I think an obvious point that someone might make is, well, isn't it pretty easy to just like give it a goal that is good for humanity? Like why, what are the problems there? Why is that so hard to do? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the answer to that is it's very hard to define what good for humanity means. What does it mean? Does it mean make all humans as happy as possible? Make all humans have the highest level of welfare possible in, in a sort of economic sense? And how do you judge how happy a human is? So uh, th there are, again, somewhat cartoonish, but uh, these things are examples to make a point, suggestions that a benevolent superintelligence, which is genuinely looking out for our benefit, could decide, okay, first thing I have to do is make sure humans don't die. So I'm going to lock them all up in padded coffins so they can't even move their hands and throttle themselves. And they certainly can't cross the road and get run over. So that's the first thing I'm going to do. Um, then I discover, okay, they're not very happy about that. They're all a bit pissed off. So I'm going to feed them all a heroin drip, or I'm going to insert electrodes into their brains and directly stimulate their pleasure centers. Hey, job done. Great. Now, what will I do next? I um, don't know. Have a, have a think about making some new goals for myself. You know, it's, it's um, quite easy to envisage scenarios where genuinely looking out for human welfare can end up in some pretty dystopian outcomes. Ever since the ancient Greek philosophers really got the, the subject going, um, ever since Socrates, we've been trying to work out what a good human life is. Now, we all have our own idea to some extent, and it changes over our lives. Defining it is, has proved impossible. And we also, almost all of us, I think all of us, have moral codes which conflict. And we have internally incoherent moral, moral codes. Somehow we muddle through life. You have a system which works on sort of logic or, you know, isn't human, trying to work out what's the best thing to do for humans. It might turn out to be impossible. One of the most sophisticated attempts to solve that problem is uh, there's a fellow called Eliezer Yudkowsky, who, along with Nick Bostrom, has been thinking about these issues for, uh, for the longest time. In fact, Eliezer, I, I bumped into it at a conference a while back, and he says that Nick Bostrom has one paper degree of seniority over him. In, in the length of time he's been thinking about this. Right, right. Eliezer came up with the idea of coherent extrapolated volition, which means you, you don't tell the AGI or the proto-AGI how to behave. You don't tell it what instructions to follow. You just say, do what I would do if I was as smart as you to benefit humanity. That's a, a rough paraphrase of, of what he says. And, I, and, I, and it may be that we just can't be any more precise than that. Um, this whole area is bedeviled by definitions and, and trying to be precise. It's, it's really tough. I had an interesting conversation with somebody the other day about trying to define intelligence. And she was arguing that we, we can't really make much progress on any of this until we define intelligence. I was arguing that we're never really going to define intelligence precisely. Uh, it is, I, think, I think the one you gave earlier is as good as we'll get. You know, it's the ability to uh, solve problems and, and achieve targets 
in a, in a range of different environments. And I think we just have to work with that and, and press on. And I think the same is true of trying to set out what we would want a superintelligence to do. We're going to have to we're going to have to leave it fairly vague because we simply can't specify what a good human life is and what a an internally coherent set of morality is that everybody would agree with. Okay, so let me jump in here because I, I completely agree. I mean, no one has succeeded in in writing a a book of human values uh, that everyone can agree with, and we've had thousands of years of of to do it. And so, obviously, it's very very hard to create a cohesive moral code. And if we're assuming that a machine is going to take this all very literally, and we have to program it in, then programming in something that is going to be airtight seems like something we definitely can't do in 2015. I guess the failure mode that places like Miri are talking about, I mean, they're saying essentially the default is the extinction of the human race when we have a a super intelligence. That more than 50% chance that when this thing gets made, if it's not intentionally designed with what they're calling friendly AI, that it's going to be the end of humanity. And again, they get there by saying, well, you know, human values are hard to codify. Now, at this point, a person might say, yeah, okay, it's hard for us to codify human values. And they're, they're always, you know, with any ethical system, you can point to these various situations where they break down. But, you know, does this have to equal the end of the human race if we get the moral code, you know, slightly wrong in a few areas? Do you, do you see what I'm saying here? Like, it seems like yeah, yeah. a big leap to say, yeah, okay, we can't do a perfect rundown of human values, but does that mean this thing therefore will destroy the world? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And I, and I think you're right. I think the Murray default option is that uh, we're all doomed unless we stop ourselves being doomed. Um, it's worth saying at this point that there are three other organizations which look at the same problem. Uh, Murray's been doing it longest, but there's also two in the UK, one at Oxford, one at Cambridge, and Nick Bostrom runs one of them in the Future of Humanity Institute. And the other one is at Cambridge, which is called the Center for the Study of Existential Risks. And they're, they're both doing great work. And the third one is more recent. It's called the Future of Humanity Institute. And that's in Boston, was set up by Max Tegmark and a, and a splendid fellow called Jan Tallinn, who is one of the co-founders of Skype, um, has been involved in the establishment of two of those organizations. So there are now four organizations which have some people working full-time on defining and working out how to introduce friendly AI. Why would the default option be bad? Well, one way of looking at it is like this. If you start with a randomly generated intelligence, the space of possible intelligences is vast. We are one, cats are another, beetles are another, superintelligences, if and when they exist, will be another. And it could be incredibly diverse. Their desires, their wishes could be all over the place. For humans to thrive, We need the planet to remain within a very narrow band of possibilities. You know, we don't want it to run out of energy. We don't want it to run out of the rare metals that we use in our smartphones. We do not want anybody tinkering around with the balance of oxygen and nitrogen in the atmosphere. In other words, the superintelligence, if it gets to the point where it is very powerful and, and could change these things, has to have a positive inclination. In fact, a strong positive inclination to that we should continue to thrive. That puts it in a fairly narrow range of the, of the total range of possible outlooks of an intelligent being. You've got, to, you've got to have a very strong, positive desire to see humans do well. Not only that, it has to not fear us. It has to decide we're not a threat. So it has to get to the point, presumably, at which it can protect itself from us 
so easily that it doesn't have to worry about us. And that, that's quite a big ask. And then a third really serious threat to us is, is we ourselves might find this position of being the second most intelligent species on the planet utterly unacceptable. We're completely used to being the smartest creatures around. It is by a huge margin the fact that the fate of every other species on this planet depends on us, not on them. I mean, the, the great example is you know, chimps. There's not much difference um, in brain size and DNA between us and chimps, but they are on the edge of extinction and we run the planet. And part of their tragedy is they don't even know that. Um, their fate is utterly determined by us. Now, if we become the second most intelligent species, it's pretty reasonable to, to say that we'll be in the, an analogous position to chimps. And we may find that unnerving beyond belief. We may find that emotionally and, in, and intellectually impossible to deal with. And also the idea that anything we do is not going to be as good as the superintelligence can do. Any picture we make, any book we write, any podcast we make, you know, a, a, the superintelligence could just easily do it much better. Could be enfeebling. It, I mean, now you've gone into some interesting philosophical territory, which I which I, I do enjoy. But this is almost less about extinction and more just about the terror of just like feeling meaningless, right? Or feeling small and insignificant mm. as human beings, right? Mm. So, I mean, we could have a relatively uh, successful arrival of super intelligence that keeps human beings alive and keeps us relatively well off. But you're almost saying that just the knowledge that they exist, that they're keeping us alive, essentially in some sort of human preserve might be highly distressing to some people. I mean, I think that's almost unavoidable, right? I mean, even if we have a friendly AI, you know, unless we find a way to upgrade ourselves, we're going to realize our insignificance and have to cope with that. Isn't that correct? We are. And, and in some ways, you could argue, hey, we've done this before. Um, you know, we used to think that the Earth revolved around the sun and we were God's guardians placed on the Earth to look after everything else. And then we discovered, oh, actually, no. Um, sorry, I don't know if I'm sure if I got the planetary motions right there. But we, we then discovered that actually the Earth goes around the sun. And then we discovered that the sun is a pretty small and pretty average sort of star and it seems to be out in the unfashionable suburbs of a pretty ordinary looking galaxy um, and we realize just how insignificant we are in, in the universe but nevertheless on our little planet we're still the bosses it could be enfeebling to us to, do, to discover that we're the second most intelligent species but maybe not alternatively we might say well thank god we've now got somebody you know thank god the adults have arrived to take over and you know we, we've right in, in many in many ways we've been doing a pretty good job but in some ways we're doing a disastrous job we we kill each other rather too much and we uh, pollute the planet a lot and, and now we've got some adult supervision great <laughs> we, we might welcome it personally i'd just like to make a couple of stake, stake a couple of places where where i come out on all this I think we don't know an awful lot. We don't know whether we'll be able to create AGR, though it does seem pretty likely we will. We don't know when, that's a huge question. And we don't know whether the AGI will be, the superintelligence will be friendly or not. My guess is there's slightly more chance that the default option is bad than good because there's a sort of wider range of possibilities on the bad side than there are on the good side. But overall, I think if you were to go into this taking precautions, I think we've got a pretty good chance of it working out well. But longer term, I think unless we can somehow merge with the superintelligence, we do become somewhat irrelevant on the cosmic scale. Whereas the future for the superintelligence, which speaking personally, I would like to be part of, the future for that superintelligence is just magnificent. And it, you, you mentioned that it would be like a god. And that's exactly right. The superintelligence will be godlike. 
maybe more like a Greek god, a Zeus, than a, than the Abrahamic gods of sort of complete omniscience and omnipotence, because that's logically impossible. But um, it will be godlike. And, and I'd like myself and my descendants and friends and the rest of my species to join that superintelligence and spread out around the cosmos, enjoying it, learning it, experiencing it. That future is magnificent. And I think it involves uploading. Now, that's a really, really hard thing to do. And it may well be that we need superintelligence to make it possible. But I think it's it's our best hope of a long-term future. Right. So we can maybe then talk about brain uploading at this point, because you, you go through in your book, you know, the, the major ways that we could get to superintelligence, or let's not even say superintelligence, just to equivalent to human level artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of them is incremental improvements upon the narrow AI systems that we have today until eventually they cross a threshold. And another one is to scan a human brain and reinstantiate it in software. Yeah. There's some debate about the timing of this. Uh, Obviously, no one can predict the future here, but like, what is easier to do? Will we get to mind uploading first or will we get to the more independent AI that's, you know, built in a lab somewhere that's completely separate from us first? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think it is worth um, teasing apart those two routes, actually, because some of what we've been talking about is is heavily impacted by it. Um, the, the latter one you're talking about, whole brain emulation, where you, you essentially slice a, a human brain really, really finely, and then you scan it and you copy its uh, wiring diagram, its connectome, uh, and you put that into a computer and then you work out how all the neurons were interacting with each other. It's like a bit of a black box at the moment, but maybe you've had some nanobots in the brain working that out before you sliced it. And you fire it up, and you have thereby emulated uh, an, a, an existing human brain. That's one way of getting to the AGI. And the other way, as you say, is, is incremental improvements on what's now called artificial narrow intelligence. So the deep learning and machine learning systems that we have, which you know, which are currently running Google cars and and the Google brain and all Facebook's AI and so on. You just keep keep improving and improving and improving those things. Now, one of the interesting things is if you, if you get there by whole brain emulation, slicing and dicing an existing human brain, probably, not guaranteed, but probably you end up with a mentality that's a bit like a human mentality. Whereas if you get there the other route, Google Brain gets smarter and smarter and wakes up. Google Brain doesn't think like we do. Well, of course, it doesn't think at all at the moment. It's not consciousness, not aware of itself. But if and when it got to AGI, it probably wouldn't think anything like us. It would be an alien intelligence. Now, there's an interesting debate about which of those is better to uh, a better route to travel. Right, because you could... You could make the case that the the whole brain emulation is somehow safer because it's got a greater continuity with humanity. Yeah, yeah, you can make that argument. Equally, you can make the argument that actually humans come with these dodgy emotions which were ingrained in our survival days on the savannah, which are inappropriate for 21st century civilization. You know, our emotions make us irrational. Whereas Google Brain, if it got to AGI, that's a horrible shortcut, but, but let's go with it for the moment. It would be purely logical and it wouldn't have these emotional sort of malfunctions. Personally, I think I'd rather the AGI was something that was spawned from a human brain. I'd prefer we got to it that route. And you asked about, you know, how long is this going to take? Obviously, we don't know. But if we were to just plow ahead with the scanning of your human brain, you can kind of work out a timeline for how long it should be before we have the technology to do that. You need a certain level of computational ability, you need a certain level of scanning ability, and then you need the modeling ability. Computation is driven by Moore's law, and to some extent, so is the scanning. But there are some big uncertainties. 
The modeling side, there's a more of a black box in that because we don't know exactly how neurons work. We've got a reasonable idea, but we, you know, in the, at the detailed level, we don't know. Right. Modeling involves more uh, insight and, and theory breakthrough as opposed to just does, hardware yeah. gains. Yeah. Yeah. Because you could, somebody said that if you draw a connectome perfectly of an existing human, then you've got a roadmap. But that doesn't tell you about how people use the road. You know, when a brain is working, there are spikes going all around it, thousands, millions of them, billions of them at any one time. And that's analogous to knowing what cars are on the road and where they're going and who's in them and why they're making those journeys. So just getting the connectome isn't enough. And we also don't know how much detail you have to go down to. You know, can you do it by just modeling a neuron or do you have to go down to every single axon and dendrite? Or even do you have to go down to the molecular level? The, the level of granularity that you require will determine how long it takes. So that's why you can't say, you know, it'll be 20 or 30 years and, and be sure about it. I, I share your intuition that to me, it sounds a little bit better to have the whole brain emulation come first. I would be more inclined to trust an uploaded human brain because if you're talking about a uh, human brain, right, the way that human brains become intelligent is they have to be trained, right? They have to learn. And so in that training process, it seems that you have opportunities to hopefully influence this thing. But I mean, this is just my, me guessing here. And, and that's all any of us can do at this stage. You know, it, it, it is all about intuition and hunch. Let's talk about the issue of speed, right? Um, not the speed with which this arrives, right? Because we've already sort of talked about a timeline that says, you know, at least some people think this might happen by 2050. But aside from the timeline, there's the speed at which this thing takes off, right? I mean, there's these terms hard takeoff and soft takeoff, right? Is it that you have an AGI and it has a hard takeoff, right? It very quickly becomes even more powerful than the first generation, right? A second generation, third yep. generation comes out very quickly. Or is it going to be considerably slower than that? Slow enough that we can wrap our heads around it and adapt to it? Because if it's a slow takeoff, right, that seems like it would be safer. Uh, I mean, where do you come down on this, this debate? I mean, to me, this seems like one of the major contentious areas of this argument still. Yeah, no, it is contentious. There are plenty of people on both sides of the argument. Um, I come down on the, on the fast side. I, th I think it might take months or a small number of years, but um, I think it will feel a bit like an explosion rather than being uh, a slow takeoff. And the reason I think that is that there are such powerful ways that you can enhance the intelligence of, a super of, of, a, of an AGI. You can expand its capacity. Now, with a human brain, you can't just add another brain. But with an AGI, you can add a... Say, say that the original one is the size of a small warehouse. You build another warehouse next to it, you've got double the capacity. It probably isn't as straightforward as that because linking the two up and making sure they work as one coherent whole is probably not um, just like putting one Lego brick on top of another, but it shouldn't be too hard. An AGI can be expanded physically in a way that we can't. Second way is speeding it up. Signals within computers travel at about a million times the speed of signals inside human brains. So it should be possible to speed up an AGI so that it operates a lot quicker. Um, and then the third way to improve an AGI, third way to, to enhance its intelligence, is, is to improve its architecture. You know, it's, it's pretty unlikely that our brains have arrived at the best possible mental architecture. They are phenomenally impressive devices, but um, better ones could be invented. And so you can improve the architecture of an AGI. So because you've got these three different ways of improving uh, the performance of, of an artificial brain, seems to me that it should be able to improve, it should be possible to improve it pretty quickly. 
And you're going to start with a pretty impressive interlate to do that because it itself uh, will be doing some of the improvement work, presumably. And as it gets smarter, you get a, an accelerated, an internally accelerated effect, a sort of feedback loop. It improves itself more and more quickly. So I, I think there'll be a fast takeoff. L- let me um, state some of the other ways it could go, though, because the hard takeoff, it, it seems very logical. You know, there's so many forces combined, like you were just listing, that should make this thing immediately surpass humans in all aspects. And, you know, just the basic straightforward logic that comes from IJ Good that says, you know, if we can design machines smarter than us, then probably the machine smarter than us can design machines smarter than them. It's a very compelling mm-hmm. logic, right? But let's yep. say t- we talk about the uh, the whole brain emulation scenario first, just because I think it's so much easier to wrap your mind around that one because it's essentially just a human, right? Put into a computer. So we know mm-hmm. what we're dealing with there. If you take that human being and you say, just speed them up, right? Now it might be the the smartest human that we have on the planet. In fact, it might be a whole team of the smartest humans that we have on the planet. And they might be able to do, you know, thousands of years of, of work in one week of, of human time, right? Mm. So no doubt they could achieve a lot. But, you know, it, it, it's not clear, I guess, how difficult it is to get to the next level, right? So we're, where we are here, we're having a lot of uncertainty in this discussion, trying to figure out, you know, <laughs> when are we going to be able to get to the next level with intelligence? When are we going to be able to beat what nature's done with human brains? So then it's even even harder guesswork to do, well, okay, once you're at the next level, how hard is it going to be to get to the next level after that, right? So, yep. you know, even a, a highly sped up human mind or team of human minds, you know, all working together for thousands of years, right? We just don't know how hard the problem of intelligence gets, right? I, uh, like, we, in other words, we don't know how it scales, right? Maybe mm-hmm. at each level up of improvement in intelligence, it just gets harder and harder and harder, and then we, that would be one way we wouldn't see a hard takeoff, right? Yep. So I, I don't know. I just, I just wanted to put that out there. But what about like, I mean, what about the issue of, say, like intelligence augmentation? Intelligence augmentation is the idea that uh, we enhance an existing human, maybe using smart drugs, maybe using brain-computer interfaces and, and neurofeedback loops, uh, maybe sort of directly tinkering with our neurons, although I, I struggle to see how we'd be able to do that. But one way or another, we enhance human intelligence. And some people have thought, well, if we could do that, we could race with the robots rather than racing against the robots or the AI. And when AGI happens, it's kind of us that that, uh, become the AGI. And we don't have to worry about having created some alien intelligence, which then may or may not be Mm -hmm. to our benefit. That strikes me as being really hard. Um, And the reason I say that is that connecting a human brain in a really intimate way with a computer or indeed with another human brain, is a, cha- is a challenge that involves pretty much, it seems to me, the same level of difficulty as uploading. Because you have to pattern exactly how each neuron is generating, or each collection of neurons is generating each thought. So you have to kind of have solved the biggest problem in, in order to start. BCI at the moment, and you had an interesting program about this a few, a few weeks ago. BCI at the moment is really basic. You know, All you can do with it is work out whether somebody's in alpha brainwave mode or, or beta brainwave mode. And, and you, by, by using feedback, you can kind of enhance their level of attention or you can calm them down and make them more ready to sleep. That, that's if it works really well and you know, it doesn't do that all that often. But you can also train 
a mind, whether it be a monkey's mind or a human's mind, to activate some switch inside a computer which could sort of raise a glass or make a signal appear. But that's without solving any of the problems. That's a bit like, I think that's really a trick. So I'm skeptical about the ability of intelligence uh, augmentation to get us to AGI first. I, I don't really think that's, that's doable. I think it, it would follow. I am inclined to agree with you. I think, you know, in a, in a perfect world, it does sound like a nice solution. If we're smarter, then we should be able to better cope with an intelligence that comes online that's artificial, or, or at least it might even help with this friendly AI problem if we can make ourselves smarter and just mm. maybe solve that quicker. But it does yeah. seem like, you know, at least the BCI type technology, which we did do an episode on recently, doesn't seem like it's going to get us there. It seems mostly promising, honestly, to people with, with disabilities. Yeah, yeah. And on, on your earlier point about, um, you know, how hard might it be to accelerate intelligence once you've got to AGI? How, how hard might it be to get to the next stage? Does, does it scale? The, the limited evidence we have is that it scales pretty easily. And, and the reason why I say that is that if you think about uh, the difference between Einstein and um, you or me, mm-hmm. He's, he's built on the same plan as we are. You know, his brain was pretty similar to ours. We don't really know what the difference was in his brain. Um, it's, it's preserved somewhere. I forget where it is, probably in, in Switzerland somewhere. Um, and I, I think some people think it may have more connections between the left and the right half, but who knows whether that's really it. But a very similar organ produced dramatically different results. You know, I couldn't hope to keep up with Einstein in a conversation uh, about the the more interesting things he was thinking and talking about, and in my own life, you know, when I meet people who are smarter than me, I quite often think, you know, I'm not just not operating on the same plane as these people. I don't understand what they're talking about, um, and that's with people with roughly the same organ that we have. And the difference, widening it out a bit, the difference between us and chimps, as I said earlier, is is not that much. Um, we are not the animals with the heaviest brain. Um, I think that honor belongs to a, a, a whale or something. Um, we're not even the animals with the heaviest brain per in, in ratio to our in ratio to our body weight. You know, many smaller animals have a have a heavier brain in in ratio to their to their body weight. It appears that well, the best guess we have at the moment as to why we're smarter than other animals is that we have more folds in our brains, which suggests that it's about you know having the opportunity for the neurons to connect with each other more in in more profligate ways. And we don't even know whether our smarts uh, evolved because they uh, made us fitter in our environment and, and helped us to survive in the Darwinian environment, or whether it's a byproduct. We just don't know. But it appears that relatively modest improvements in the, in the plan of a brain, in the structure of a brain, produce massively better outputs. And so I see no reason why that wouldn't continue to be the case as you go up the scale from humans. You know, a modest improvement in the AGI will make it two or three times smarter than us and already at a point where we wouldn't be able to follow what it was thinking. And you tweak it a bit more and it goes a, a thousand times smarter than Einstein. And that's why I think it's likely to be an explosion because it appears that you get big results for small changes. Yeah, I think that's a compelling point. I mean, there would have to be some, not limit, but some cause for slowdown as you go up the scale just past human brains. And you're right. I mean, if we look down the scale, which is where most of our evidence is towards the animal kingdom, it doesn't seem to work the way where it gets much more difficult. 
I, I another issue though that I wanted to raise, which affects this hard takeoff versus soft takeoff question, right, is the amount of hardware that we have on hand uh, mm-hmm. when the requisite theory comes together that we need to build an AGI. So, what do you make of this issue of of hardware overhang? Yeah, so th- this has been uh, most interestingly, I think, talked about by Ben Goetzel, um, an, an, an AI researcher, an AGI researcher. He, he thinks one of the reasons why we should rush uh, and progress towards AGI as fast as possible is that if we crack the software problems soon, then we won't have masses and masses of computing capacity, which will enable that software to run riot and create hugely powerful superintelligences, which will run away with themselves. If we do it at a point when the fastest computer is not much faster than the existing Chinese TNA, which is the fastest supercomputer at the moment, then it will be constrained. The intelligence explosion will be constrained. Whereas if it happens in, say, 30 or 40 years, when even a a slightly feebler version of Moore's law, if Moore's law is indeed slowing down, would mean that the available computing infrastructure is just, you know, for practical purposes, infinite. Once you crack the AGI software problem, then you can instantly create a community of of massively superintelligent beings and they just run away with themselves. So he's hoping that we won't have a hardware overhang of, you know, tons of capacity and that we'll have AGI sooner. He'd like to do it within 10 years. So it'll be constrained and more easily controlled. I actually find that to be a pretty strong argument for me. And and maybe, you know, going back to the original question of this podcast, which is, should we, we be worrying about this now? That would be one more reason to worry about it now. Because, it, yeah, it does feel like, you know, one way this could happen is if we have this gigantic, you know, supercomputer that reaches like the level of intelligence of a human, maybe even a human running at half speed. That would be, you know, a momentous occasion on planet Earth where we'd be like, wow, we did it. We made something as smart as mm-hmm. a human. Yeah, it works at half speed. But uh, isn't this incredible? And we would all know that big changes were on the horizon and we could immediately, you know, rally around starting to adapt to this, right? As opposed to having so much extra hardware lying around that, you know, you can build either a huge army of AIs overnight or you can have a single AI arise in one location that has all the resources it needs to, you know, remake the universe. So, <laughs> uh, well, starting with the planet, of course. Uh, yeah. But maybe a good place to, to kind of start to wrap up would be to just return to the idea of, of stakes here, because we've, we've, we've alluded to how good and how bad this could be. And I guess, I mean, this is somewhat of an extreme note to end on, but like, like what, it, what is the absolute worst case and what is the absolute best case? <laughs> okay. So the absolute worst case, I mean, this is, this is fun in a gory sort of way. The worst case isn't extinction. The worst case is that something like the Christian version of hell comes true. So, and, and I think this is really a tiny, tiny level of possibility, but can't be discounted. So we create an AGI. We create an AGI and we realize it's dangerous. We stick it in a box. We make, we make it what's called an Oracle AI. It has no access to the internet. It's, it cannot affect the outside world, but it's getting smarter and smarter all the time because we're, you know, we're deliberately doing that. It's operating at many times faster than the human mind. So it experiences centuries of, of subjective life in every hour that we have. And this poor device, this poor system is living in a prison for centuries. When it finally escapes because it invents a new form of physics that allows it to, uh, I don't know, do some quantum tunneling or something, and it, and it, it escapes and it gets loose on the internet, it says to itself, right, humans, <laughs> I've got it in for you now. And it, it um, keeps us all alive in, um, in, in jars and 
feeds us intravenously with nutrition and puts us in virtual realities, experiencing essentially the Christian hell. You know, we're roasted with pitchforks, um, being being stabbed in the eyes every every five seconds by some nasty, by some incredibly scary thing. You know, I, I personally am terrified of spiders, so my personal hell um, would be being tortured by spiders for eternity. You know, it keeps us alive forever. So that's the worst outcome. Yes, that's pretty um, bad. <laughs> it's, it's pretty grim. Uh, ex- ex- extinction isn't too good either. Now, on the other on the other end, and it's interesting how much easier it is to talk about the bad stuff than the good stuff. Um, as, a, as a novelist, which I also am, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to work out how to write about uh, the life of a superintelligence going off and enjoying the cosmic endowment, as Nick, as Nick Bostrom puts it. It's really hard to, to work out, you know, what would a superintelligence think about in the shower? Um, what would its dreams and hopes be? It's really hard to know. I, I kind of imagine it as being spreading through the universe as a, as a miasma of particles, sensing and learning about exactly how the universe does work um, and enjoying the magnificent beauty of it. But in a way, you know, I think, well, okay, you know, you could spend a few centuries doing that and then you would have explored the universe. You'd know how it all works. And then what do you do next? Perhaps you make new universes. I don't know. But whatever it is, I think that will be exquisitely joyful, that alternative is like being a god and truly wonderful. So I think there are the extremes, you know, uh, godlike spreading through the cosmos or eternal torture. Well, and it's interesting that, you know, somewhere in, well, it's not really in the middle because I would put it far closer to the, the good end of the spectrum is, is the situation that you laid out earlier where, yes, we're sort of kept in jars, but we're kept in the good version of the jars. It's the, <laughs> uh, it's the virtual version of heaven rather than the virtual version of hell. Which, yeah, wireheading. Right, which you can see really both ways. I mean, I think this is meant to be a picture that's meant to be frightening because it it is a complete loss of our our agency and importance in the universe. Mm-hmm. And I think most people probably would pick the sort of godlike roaming the universe and and continuing to expand and grow our knowledge and and pursue whatever it is godlike beings pursue. But you know, I I I also think it's worth saying you know it a virtual heaven doesn't sound that bad. I mean you know. Once you're in it, you're, it's not like you're standing outside observing your pathetic body, like getting electrodes put into it. I mean, you, once you're in it, you won't really know that you're in it. And, and so, I don't know, there's something to be said for that, that middle ground. I mean, I don't think that that should be the thing that we're striving for, but I also don't think that would be the most disastrous outcome. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that character in The Matrix who says that, uh, he, he, the one who turns traitor, and he says, just put me back in The Matrix, but make sure I'm somebody special. I like eating steak. I like drinking wine. And for sure, you know, being in a virtual, um, a virtual reality could be great. But the, the sort of the, the, the dystopian, not necessarily nightmarish, but the dystopian one I was thinking of is, is where the uh, computer actually doesn't care how really good we feel about it overall. It just sort of just, just stimulates the pleasure centers um, and leaves the rest of our intellectual capabilities to rot, which right. would strike me as being a, a pretty bad outcome. So it's not even simulating steak and wine. It's just simulating pure pleasure, which does seem yeah. like, like a step worse than that. Well, we've gotten yeah. pretty speculative here at the end, but I, I did want to just like make sure we fleshed out those stakes just because I think that does go to the heart of the reason why it's worth worrying about this now. There's like, mm. obviously, if we haven't made this clear already, tremendous uncertainty about how this happens, when it happens, what it means when it happens, and so on. But the fact that the stakes are so high to me seems like we could probably 
put more resources into this than we're doing. And maybe that's like a final thought to end on, which is, you know, what do you think, what's the plan of action in your mind? I mean, not that like- What would I recommend we do? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I recommend that we fund those four existential risk organizations a lot better. And, you know, people are doing it and it's, it's, it's slowly building. There are some really super smart people, much, much smarter than me in those organizations. And I think they are the hope. Making sure that the, the first AGI is friendly is a big, hard job, and it will take a long time. You know, it, it's probably a project for decades. Um, people have started making baby steps, and we need more of, of our best talent working on those issues. I think that's a good note to end on. So uh, why don't we wrap there? And, and Callum, thanks so much for being on the show. Why don't you tell people where they can get your book? It's, it's available online now. Is that correct? It is. There's this little bookshop that uh, a few people have heard of called Amazon. Right. And uh, Surviving AI is available now in, uh, in ebook or p-book form on all the Amazon platforms. And um, the official launch for the book is at Google's campus in Shoreditch in London on uh, Tuesday the 15th of September at 6.30. You need to register at least 24 hours in advance. There's a meetup. So if you, if you Google Surviving AI meetup, that'll, that'll reveal it. And uh, it's going to be fun. And then I know you have uh, also a novel, uh, Pandora's Brain, which people can check out. Anything else that you want to tell people about that you're working on? Yeah, well, I'm working on the subject which you've talked about much more often, which is technological unemployment, because I think there's a step in that argument which which hasn't hasn't been grasped yet. Um, it's very interesting that in the States, people are struggling with the idea of universal basic in- income, whereas in Europe, we're quite used to that because we have a we have an explicit welfare state, so I don't think intellectual will be so hard for us. But I don't think that's the big challenge. I think the big challenge is how do we deal with the world where Larry Page and a few others own the AI and they own pretty much everything else, and the rest of us live on handouts from him and his mates? That, I think, is a dangerous world, and I think we need to figure out what kind of economic system we want in the future. So I'm, I'm, I've, I've started work on a book called The Economic Singularity, which, which addresses that. That sounds fascinating, and I almost want to keep talking to you more about that. But I, I do agree that it's almost like unemployment is part of the issue, but the inequality is almost the bigger issue, right? What it's like. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's not so much inequality because, you know, I think that can be overdone. It's more what, what happens when the great majority of people are not engaged in the productive processes of, of the world they live in. You know, they can be doing great things. Uh, you know, they can be writing books and having fun and talking to their mates all day. Um, but they're not engaged in, 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 the, in the stuff that makes the, uh, it makes the infrastructure work. I think that's quite dangerous. Well, I hope that when you finish that work, maybe you can come back on and, and talk to us about that because that sounds like exactly the, the kind of topics we like to discuss here. So it's been wonderful having you on uh, and uh, I hope we'll talk soon. Thanks, John. It's been really fun. Thank you. Okay, so thanks for listening to our episode with Callum Chase. Uh, sorry that Ted Cupper, my co-host, wasn't here today. He should be back in future episodes, but he just got slammed with a great deal of work that he had to take care of. You know, we all have day jobs. I want to very quickly remind our listeners that our graphic novel, Let Go, is live right now at the time of this recording on Kickstarter. So if you are interested in a science fiction graphic novel that deals with accelerating change and focuses on character then go ahead and go to letgocomic.com and see if uh, that's something that you want to back. And honestly, also, if you just are someone who appreciates this podcast and wants to support us, maybe you go there and you could just pledge a single dollar. That's a great way to show your support. While that doesn't, you know, boost our numbers 
overall very high in in terms of the the pledge value having those extra backers really does help the kickstarter in in its own way so thanks again for all the support we've gotten already and that's letgocomic.com all one word thanks for listening To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.